Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode 45. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $375 each, and LTB Coins, my very favorite altcoin, is trading at $0.000155 US dollars. Mmm, mmm, mmm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me today as I podcast from East Nashville, Tennessee, with my trusty dog, Maxwell, by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. (laughs) We're two Bitcoin enthusiasts who love talking about Bitcoins and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. On today's show, I stay right here in Nashville, where I am privileged to be speaking with Tennessee's top banking official, Commissioner Greg Gonzalez. Commissioner Gonzalez is the man responsible for overseeing the Tennessee Department of Financial Institutions. Commissioner Gonzalez talks to us about how he is working to bring state legislators together with payment experts and users to examine the opportunities and potential risks tied to new currencies, including, of course, everyone's favorite, Bitcoin. All right, today on the show, I am honored to have as a guest Commissioner Greg Gonzalez. Commissioner Gonzalez is the top banking official in Tennessee. Commissioner Gonzalez, welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy. Well, John, thank you so much for having me. Oh, yeah. You know, I heard you speak at the event you all had in Chicago a number of months back, and I think that was the Emerging Payments Task Force, or was that something different? No, that was the Emerging Payments Task Force that the Conference of State Bank Supervisors has established. From what I read, the goal of that was to bring state legislators together with payment experts and users to examine the risks and opportunities tied to uh, digital currencies. Is that right? Right. Uh, Can I give you just a little bit of a background as to how this thing came about and what we're trying to do? Okay, yeah, please do. That sounds great. Okay. Well, first off, John, let me tell you how much I appreciate you being willing to uh, chat with me about the uh, Bitcoin environment. What you've given to me has been very, very helpful, and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you and your willingness to share your knowledge with our department. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, It's been extremely helpful. And as far as this task force is concerned, let me just take a few moments to give you some background. The Conference of State Bank Supervisors is the professional organization of banking commissioners in the United States. Uh, It also includes the U.S. territories. And CSBS has been involved in giving banking commissioners like myself uh, a national forum to coordinate and to develop financial policy for over 100 years. Okay. That's what CSBS is all about. And uh, I can tell you, over uh, recent years, banking commissioners, uh, certainly including myself, we've been involved with a number of payment issues that have um, come to our attention, and including uh, virtual currency. Okay. So CSBS uh, decided to put together uh, this task force last fall to look at emerging issues in the payment arena. Uh, and then what that might mean for our citizens and what it might mean for our financial institutions. 
Okay. Uh, and then what it might mean for, you know, the virtual currency operators and those that are interested in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that the task force, besides myself from Tennessee, uh, we've got, uh, you know, the Texas Commissioner, California, Florida, New York, uh, and a few others. So we've got, uh, you know, the commissioners from a good cross-section of the country, including those states that have been very much involved in this area. I see. Now, those are not all of the commissioners, right? No, there's nine altogether. Um, so we have Georgia, Utah, and uh, Washington as well. Massachusetts is the chair. So those are the the nine states that are involved here. Okay, so a good cross-section. A good cross-section. Okay. And what we're doing is engaging uh, a broad range of stakeholders, including people like yourself that are knowledgeable in the area. Uh, We're also working with other state regulators, with our federal counterparts, and with the marketplace, with people in the marketplace. I would say this, our goal is to seek the best possible supervisory structure to encourage innovation, uh, to encourage a consistent regulatory approach across the states while maintaining marketplace stability, uh, safety and soundness, and consumer protection. So those are the interests that we're trying to balance. I see. You know, it sounds to me like the Emerging Payments Task Force is being pretty positive about Bitcoin and digital currencies. In other words, they're not saying, as some other countries like Russia, for instance, are saying, you know, absolutely no, we're 100% against Bitcoin for whatever their reasons. But, you know, again, it sounds to me like Tennessee and also the United States is being a little bit more thoughtful about this and taking a little bit more of a thoughtful approach realizing it sounds to me like you all are realizing that there is some real potential for bitcoin uh, in the financial system moving forward so uh, no question let me just say this that over the last couple of years i've had uh, companies and individuals approach us uh, from the virtual currency environment mm-hmm. uh, to discuss licensing to discuss regulation so I would sum it up by saying this. You know, we want to make sure that consumers are protected and they're well-informed, but we also want to make sure that citizens have the ability to benefit uh, from the innovations that are taking place uh, in this environment. And we think that if we can establish a good environment uh, in this area, that it will also benefit the operators of virtual currency. I see. I'm sure that you are familiar with Benjamin Losky in New York and the New York uh, Department of Financial Services. You know, he yeah. came out a number of months back with these guidelines regarding bit licenses. And of course, a lot of people in the Bitcoin community are saying, well, essentially what he's done or what he might be doing, this unelected official, is making it difficult for Bitcoin businesses to operate in New York. And therefore, a lot of these Bitcoin businesses are doing what any business would do there's a hostile environment, they're going to move to an environment where they feel like they can you know, run their business effectively without being harassed, as it were. So do you have any opinion on the New York Department of Financial Services, their guidelines? Do you think they're doing things right, doing things wrong? It sounds to me like you all are taking a little bit more, well, actually a lot more, you know, level-headed approach to this. Well, what we're doing in Tennessee is we have a review going on internally as we are working with the task force 
you know, to understand, you know, the task force is looking at these issues very broadly okay. from a nationwide standpoint so that we can then provide some feedback to all state banking commissioners. Uh, but as far as Tennessee is concerned, you know, we're looking at this as to, you know, what do we need to do from our state's perspective? Mm-hmm. I think that Tennessee, you know, generally speaking, has done a great job of balancing uh, the interest of uh, the average citizen with the interest of, of business. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to make sure that businesses are able to operate in Tennessee in the least burdensome way possible, uh, but to do that in a way that serves our citizens in the best way possible. We're just looking for that uh, for that balance, and that's a great hallmark of what uh, Governor Haslam's been doing here for the last uh, four years. I see. That's our philosophy. Now, I will say that we've had some entities approach us about establishing uh, exchange uh, operations uh, in the state. So we're looking at that and working with those applicants, working with those operators to understand how those operations would work here and what they would offer, Mm -hmm. how they go about their business. So we have an aspect of our law. We have an act that regulates money transmission. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, for instance, we haven't licensed anybody yet as an exchange mm-hmm. in the virtual currency environment, but I can see the exchange certainly with respect to the ability to um, exchange virtual currency for a fiat currency is coming within that act. I see. Uh, so one of the fundamental things that we're looking at is uh, to figure out, you know, how does that regulation look going forward? Let's say that we do license some of these exchanges, then, then what we want to do is get the best benefit of the work that the task force is doing, along with the experience of actually regulating some exchanges uh, to determine what the regulation of the future might look like. I see. Uh, so it's you know, it's what we do in every area. You you always want to try to continuously improve the ability of business to serve the populace. Right. That's what you've got to continue to do. You never you never reach the ultimate to say we've arrived. You always can find ways to do regulation better, and that's what we're trying to achieve. So do you think that moving forward in the next couple of years, there could be some licenses granted for Bitcoin or digital currency exchanges here in Tennessee? Does that look like something that's going to happen? I think so. Uh, we've got interest in uh, exchanges being established here. Uh, we're working with uh, some applicants now. I think that's uh, going to happen. You know, One of the questions, once again, is how does our current Money Transmitter Act fit some of these businesses? Uh, it may fit some very well. It may be that we need to modify that act down the road to accommodate other models. You know, that's one of the real challenges that I think that uh, regulators have to meet. We always deal with the law that's in front of us, but what we've got to do is to try to understand where the marketplace is going, mm-hmm. where businesses may be going, what new models may be looking at, and have the flexibility within the law to address new ways of doing business, new ways of delivering important services to the people of Tennessee. Uh, And that's what we're constantly looking at, trying to understand how does a business fit in current state law, Mm -hmm. and then 
how do new models need to be addressed with potential modifications of existing law going forward. That is a constant consideration that we're always looking at. So Andreas Antonopoulos, I'm sure you're familiar with him. He's considered the greatest mind in the Bitcoin sphere, in the Bitcoin world, right? Just a couple of weeks ago, I believe it was, that he gave testimony in Canada to the Senate or whatever. But it was brilliant, and I think that they questioned him and grilled him for about two hours, I believe. And I watched the whole thing. Have you all had a chance to look at that? And the reason I ask is because... Andreas is so articulate and so good at explaining the details of Bitcoin and digital currencies, the positive things coming. And he's also so good at helping regulators understand the potential for Bitcoin and helping to quell fears that regulators have about ways that Bitcoin might be used for nefarious purposes. Um, And basically, I think at the end of that, I got the feeling, and I think the uh, regulators there in Canada had the feeling that, wow, this guy really knows what he's talking about. This is intelligent stuff. This is no longer a joke. It's considered to be a real player in the financial world, right? Bitcoin is now going to be a real player moving forward. The Bitcoin technology, the blockchain technology. Have you all had a chance to listen to any of that testimony that Andreas Antonopoulos gave in Canada a few weeks back? I have not, uh, but we're making a note to go pull that up and uh, to take a look at it. I'd be very interested in hearing his views as to whatever questions that the Canadians have put to him. So we're going to do that. I really enjoyed it because the Canadians, you know, they really, I don't want to say they grilled him, but, you know, when it was finished, I could not think of a single issue that had not been covered. I could not think of a single question that had not been answered. And some of the questions were in French and some of them were in English and they were translated, but they really hit it hard. And again, it was like two hours of that. And by the end of that, I felt like not only had I received a really good education in Bitcoin, and I've heard him speak many times before, but this was him covering every single base, and it was so impressive, and they were just blown out of their seats. They were so impressed by this guy. You know, they introduced him as the guru, and at the end, they said, we really do think of you as a guru now, because the guy is so articulate and so easy to listen to. So let me ask you just a few questions. You know, we have the Tennessee Bitcoin Alliance now, the TBA, Um, You know, when you say that too fast, someone might confuse that with the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, not to be confused, but the Tennessee Bitcoin Alliance, they had a couple of questions for you that they wanted me to read. One of the questions is they wanted me to ask you, Commissioner Gonzalez, what do you think Bitcoin is? Is it just digital currency to you? That is a question directly from the Tennessee Bitcoin Alliance and their interim board of directors. Well, probably the best way to answer that is to direct folks to the guidance that we put out as a department uh, in August. Okay. You know, where we talked about virtual currency and we talked about that virtual currencies have legitimate purposes and uh, can be purchased and sold and exchanged for other types of virtual currencies or... Mm -hmm fiat currencies like the U.S. dollar. So one of the things that we've tried not to do is to put too much of a simplistic label on this. But, you know, one of the things that we continue to do is to listen to people like you, John, to get a better understanding. And, uh, you know, I think that our thinking here continues to evolve uh, along with um, the virtual currency uh, environment. So... um, 
that's what I would say to them and, and to direct people to the guidance uh, that we put out and that we do believe that Bitcoin and virtual currencies have legitimate purposes. And the reason we put this out that, you know, we just want to make sure that the average citizen has some basic understanding uh, of some of the um, underlying issues that they may deal with if they may get interested in this area. Yes, okay. Another question that they had asked, they said, how can we, as the Tennessee Bitcoin Alliance, given our mission to promote blockchain technologies for a free and equitable society, how can we help or guide you and your department? And I think you've answered that question that uh, I know you've spoken with John Meese, and yeah. um, you're speaking with me now and being interviewed for Bitcoins and Gravy. And I imagine that you'll be speaking with other people within the Tennessee Bitcoin Alliance. You know, it's funny because when I look at regulators here in the United States, you know, gosh darn it, sometimes they do their job. And as I'm sure you're aware, sometimes they just fail miserably at their jobs, right? Right. In terms of regulating. Uh, one thing Andreas Antonopoulos talks about his fear of being overregulated, like, for instance, by Benjamin Losky. Uh, with the New York Department of Financial Services, is that as they're attempting to regulate Bitcoin technologies, they're getting it wrong. But moreover, we're seeing bank regulators getting it wrong. You know, I think the classic example in my lifetime, which happened, I think, within the past five years, is Wachovia. Wachovia was found guilty of money laundering, and the money laundering they were doing was helping out the drug cartels there in Colombia by way of Mexico. We're talking to the tune of billions of dollars. Well, you know, from a citizen's perspective, while no single individual working for Wachovia went to prison, they basically got a slap on the wrist. They were fined a number of, I don't know, tens of millions of dollars. And that was that when all of these billions of dollars were funneled through Wachovia to these drug cartels in Colombia and Mexico. So this is one of the scariest things that has happened, in my opinion, in banking in U.S. history. And yet it got almost no, <laughs> almost no press, right, which was shocking. And then again, no single individual went to prison. When things like that happen, you know, myself as a citizen, I think, my God, what's going on? And how could that have happened? Why wasn't it regulated? internally and externally with auditors and after the fact that it did happen that this is historical fact why did nobody go to prison you know why was no one incarcerated for this these are the things when it comes to regulators and finance and banking that really as a citizen really concern me and really scare me well the only thing i can tell you is how we uh, try to do things here in the state um, we weren't involved in those uh, issues that you mentioned. Right, right, obviously. And our mission is to ensure safety and soundness and compliance with governing law, mm -hmm. but to give all the institutions that we regulate the opportunity to contribute to economic progress and to serve citizens. And the ultimate goal, I think, is to put institutions in a position to serve the public. It's It's not... It's all about regulation. You know, we don't regulate just for the sake of regulating something. Right. That's a false mission mm -hmm. because the real purpose is to put these institutions in a position to serve and to provide important services to the people of Tennessee. That's the ultimate goal. Right. Uh, and that's what we're seeking. And to the extent that we don't do that, then we might fail. I think that we're doing a good job of balancing those.
uh, interest. Yes. So that's how we're going to approach this area as well. There's promise here. Uh, virtual currencies have legitimate purposes. Uh, at the same time, we want to provide the citizenry with basic information to help them take a, maybe a first look for a lot of people uh, at virtual currencies. So that was the purpose of our guidance. And I know that our views will evolve over time as we continue to talk to people like you that are knowledgeable uh, and others in the uh, alliance. You know, we'd love to have people come up and visit us in the department sometime, have a meeting up here and meet with other people uh, in our department. Oh, that would be great. We need to see if we can set that up. Oh, man, that sounds great. And I know the Tennessee Bitcoin Alliance is working on setting up uh, some good educational tools for the public. And maybe some of those can, you know, bleed over and, you know, help to possibly educate the commission. So let me ask you another question. What are your concerns about the effects of overall effects of regulation and how you're looking at this on blockchain technologies when it comes to growth in Tennessee? Well, you know, I won't get maybe that specific there, but let me just say in general, the philosophy once again is to ensure safety and sound compliance with governing law. Mm -hmm. We've got to find ways to allow regulation to adopt and, and be uh, adapted to by business. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I think about regulation in general, and I think about all that's happened in the financial institution sphere. The developments over the last um, 25 years, I've been in this department nearly 30 years. Oh, wow. And from the time I began to today, there's been an overwhelming change and changes that we have seen in financial services and the way that services have been delivered and the philosophy of the marketplace. So many things have happened, and it's really up to government to certainly establish important fundamental basics to protect the marketplace, to protect citizens, but also be flexible enough to allow innovation to happen, to allow new business models and new delivery mechanisms to see if they can succeed. Hmm. So that's what we're all about, trying to find that happy medium, working with financial institutions. We are constantly in dialogue with the financial services sector in this state to hear from them uh, what challenges they have, what can we do to help them serve the average Tennessee citizen. Mm -hmm. Those are the kinds of things that we want to do while at the same time looking at the fundamental um, needs of consumer protection and market stability and trying to find the balance in all of that. That's what we do every day. That's just a, a way of life for us. Commissioner Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining me today on Bitcoins and Gravy. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule. I know you're busy. I know when you leave this, you're not going out to breakfast or lunch. I know you've probably got another meeting to go to and probably on throughout the day. So thank you so much for joining me here today. And I hope that down the road, maybe in a few months or six months, I could have you back on the show and you could update my listeners who are worldwide, actually, about what's going on here in Tennessee with regulations in regard to Bitcoin and where we stand in six months. I would love to have you back on the show at some point. That would be fantastic. And I look forward to that. And in the meantime, let's stay in touch okay, uh, so that you can continue to help us shape our views. I mean, we need you. We need you. We need your help. So uh, please stay in touch and help us as we uh, gain more knowledge in this area. 
Okay, well, I really appreciate that. And of course, obviously, anytime that you have any questions, feel free to give me a call. You've got my phone number. You've got my email address. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for your time, and thank you for your thoughtful comments. Well, we're looking forward to working with people like you and uh, seeing how this develops. It's going to be interesting. It's definitely going to be interesting, no doubt about that. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks again, John. Uh Greg, thank you so much. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Commissioner Greg Gonzalez here on Bitcoins and Gravy. Thanks so much, Commissioner Gonzalez. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Bye. I know that it may sound absurd, but I have for you a magic word. Today's magic word is hope, H-O-P-E, as in the sentence, I hope regulators will look past their fears to see the true potential of the Bitcoin protocol and this amazing new value transfer network. Coming up next, my dear listeners, is a rather lengthy recording that is shocking, entertaining, and highly informative. I know some of you may have already heard this recording a few months back, but while we're on the subject of regulations today, I thought I would play this recording again because it is so very important. Next month, I'll be interviewing Patrick Byrne, the CEO of Overstock.com, and hopefully he'll talk to us a bit about the concept of deep capture. If you're not familiar with deep capture, check it out at deepcapture.com. In a nutshell, we now have solid proof and forensic evidence that many times regulated are owned, in a sense, by the banks or industries that they are supposed to be regulating. Is this any different, really, than the bribery that has been taking place on planet Earth since the beginning of civilization? Well, it's certainly a lot more complicated than just taking a bribe, and these days it may not even involve a transfer of money from one party to another. It's pretty complicated, actually, but it's still a kind of cheating that we simply cannot afford to put up with any longer. I stand with those men and women who call for more integrity, more transparency, and more serious repercussions for those regulators who are caught slacking, cheating, taking bribes, or getting captured by those same industries they are supposed to be regulating. We know that officially, in uh, the context that we have today, the Federal Reserve is not properly called a regulator. It's called a supervisor. We're using the word regulator throughout this hour because it's easier for us normal people to understand. Okay, here's Jake. Here's a little-known fact about being a bank examiner. You actually spend your days working inside the banks you're examining, like you have a desk there and your own phone. At some of the biggest banks, examiners even have half a floor reserved just for them to constantly track what the bank is doing. And in the past, most of those Fed examiners inside the banks had been generalists. If they needed an expert in liquidity risk or market risk or whatever, they had to call one in from Fed HQ. But one of the reforms after the financial crisis was to hire lots of experts and station them inside the banks too. Carmen Seguera was one of these experts. Her expertise was helping big banks with the procedures and systems they need to comply with the many rules and regulations they face here and overseas. She'd done it for over a decade. Like any good overachiever, she speaks four languages, French, Italian, Spanish, English. She's currently learning Dutch. She has degrees from Harvard, Cornell, and Columbia, and studied international law at the Sorbonne. When Carmen showed up at the Fed for her first day, the end of October 2011, She didn't know which bank she was going to be assigned to. Then she bumped into her supervisor, 
He said, do you know where you're going? And I said, no. And he said, you're going to Goldman. And my thought was, uh-oh. <laughs> Goldman being, of course, Goldman Sachs. The look on his face was like he was very much looking for my reaction. Um, and when I, I think after so many years of, of practicing law, when you see someone that is just looking to see what your reaction is going to be, um, my first instinct is, let me make sure that I don't give a reaction. <laughs> Which is very difficult because I have a very expressive face. Um, I know this is a radio show, so you guys... You know, we you can vouch. We're, that, we're looking right? at it. Yes, <laughs> you do right. have an expressive face. I, you know, poker face is a, is a real problem for me. <laughs> that was Brian Reed, by the way, the This American Life producer working with me on this story. You'll hear him in some of these interviews. When Carmen embedded at Goldman Sachs, it was probably the firm that for Americans most symbolized what was wrong with Wall Street, deservedly or not. In 2010, the year before she started, the SEC hit it with one of the biggest fines in history at the time, more than half a billion dollars for misleading investors in a deal right before the financial crisis. That same year, Goldman executives were hauled before Congress and berated for contributing to the collapse of the economy. One popular view of Goldman was captured in this mild little metaphor from a Rolling Stone article, which compared the firm to, quote, a great vampire squid wrapped around the face of humanity, relentlessly jamming its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. So Carmen was part of this new wave of expert examiners. And soon after she arrived, she says, her bosses started asking the team if they were getting any opposition from the old guard, the generalists at the Fed, who'd been working there for years. Many of these old guard examiners had a jargony and confusing-sounding job title. You'll hear now and then as we talk about this. They were called business line specialists. Carmen says it didn't take long before she did start to notice pushback from the old guard exactly what her bosses anticipated. For instance, at one meeting, she says, and this is documented in the minutes from the meeting, a senior executive from Goldman was talking about all sorts of things and mentioned that Goldman's view was that once clients were wealthy enough, certain consumer laws didn't apply to them. I was shocked. A senior compliance officer from Goldman Sachs saying something like that is a, is a natural red flag. I mean... You definitely want to take a look at what it is that they're doing there. Maybe Goldman was doing nothing wrong, but this is a big part of a bank examiner's job, to follow up on leads like this. And after that meeting, Carmen sat down with examiners who'd been there, from the Fed, but also from the FDIC and the New York State Banking Authority. Carmen told them she wanted to follow up on that comment, and then a Fed examiner piped up. This colleague at the Fed basically said, you know, oh, that point? Oh, you didn't hear that. And, you know, I looked over at the New York bank examiner and the FDIC bank examiner, and, and we sort of, you know, looked at each other and we said, uh, yes, we did. <laughs> we did hear that. <laughs> One of the other people in this conversation confirmed this for me. The Fed examiner responded, well, he, the Goldman executive, he didn't mean it. You know, I was floored. It was the moment when I realized, oh, so this is what this is what pushback looks like. Carmen says this wasn't an isolated incident. In December, not even two months into her job, a business line specialist came to Carmen and told her that her minutes from a key meeting with Goldman executives were wrong, that people didn't say some of the things Carmen noted in the minutes. 
The business line specialist wanted her to change them. Carmen didn't. That same day, Carmen was called into the office of a guy named Mike Silva. Silva had worked at the Fed for almost 20 years. He was now the senior Fed official stationed inside Goldman. What Mike Silva said to Carmen made her very uncomfortable. She scribbled notes as he talked to her. I mean, even looking at my own meeting minutes, I see the the handwriting is like um, nervous handwriting. (laughs) It's like you can tell. Um, He started off by talking about he wanted to give me some mentoring feedback. And then he started about talking about the importance of credibility. And he said, you know, credibility at the Fed is, is about subtleties and about perceptions as opposed to reality. Wait, he said that? Yes. What does that even mean? Mm. I found it to be completely incredible. For somebody to tell me that credibility is about perception as opposed to reality... I mean, I come from the world of legal and compliance. You know, we deal with hard evidence, you know. (laughs) It's like we don't deal with, you know, perceptions. What else did he say? Um, It it was interesting because he said, you know, the the Fed takes most seriously um, those employees which are the most quiet ones. And that, um, that it was important, essentially, that I understand this, because otherwise I would be frozen out. Mike Silva would go on to play a big part in Carmen's tenure at the Fed. We reached out to him several times, but he didn't want to take part in the story. So it's impossible to know his side of this. Though remember, this isn't a story about a personnel dispute between Carmen and her superiors. It's about what she did next, and what that reveals about the way the New York Fed works. Carmen says she was so shaken by these incidents, someone telling her she didn't hear something she knew she heard, another colleague asking to alter minutes that Carmen believed were accurate, and then the Fed's top guy at Goldman telling her that perceptions are more important than reality. She says it was like reality itself was being questioned at the Fed. She realized she wanted a clear record of what was really happening, in case there were ever any disputes about it. So she went to the spy store, bought a tiny audio recorder, put it on her keychain, and started switching it on secretly at important meetings. Um, Mike had called me into his office. This is one of the first recordings she made. It's with her supervisor. His name is Jonathan Kim. She's talking to him about the meeting that she had with Mike Silva and how upset she was by what he told her. Credibility at the Fed is about subtleties, um, perceptions as opposed to realities. Kim had done Carmen's job before her and told her he'd experienced opposition from the same people. Kim's advice was to be patient. The Fed was trying to change, and moving the Fed, he said, in an unfortunate metaphor, was slow, like moving the Titanic. Meanwhile, in those early months, Carmen started looking at one deal that had caught the attention of the Fed's team at Goldman. It's a deal that gave her a chance to really see the Fed in action, to see what the Fed did when faced with a situation where Goldman had done something regulators thought was questionable. Carmen remembers the moment she first learned about the deal. Friday, January 6th at 3.54 p.m., we get an email from Goldman sort of alerting us to this transaction that they're planning to close. The email said that Goldman wanted to notify the Fed about a fast-moving negotiation between it and a large Spanish bank. The Spanish bank has operations all over the world. It's called Banco Santander. Santander and Goldman both declined to comment about the deal for our story. This email raised questions for Carmen. First of all, an alert like this was unusual. 
Goldman had employees conducting deals all over the world every day and hardly ever wrote emails to the Fed about them. And then there was the timing, late in the afternoon on Friday, January 6th, a date which may not mean anything to you, but Carmen knew that it was Three Kings Day, one of the biggest national holidays in Spain. My first reaction was, um, why are we getting this email? And then my second thought was Banco Santander closing a deal on the equivalent of Christmas Eve in Spain. That's interesting. So, you know, we get back to work after the weekend and, um, you know, Mike Silva is quite upset about this transaction. Mike Silva, remember, was the Fed's top official inside Goldman, the one who talked to Carmen about perceptions versus reality. It's helpful to know a bit about Mike Silva before you hear how the Fed reacted to this deal. From everything we can tell, he seems like a regulator who's trying to do a good job. In the tapes, Silva talks about the Fed's duty to serve the public. He'd been in the Navy, volunteered with disabled veterans, and he'd gone to Iraq after the invasion to help get the country's national bank on its feet. And at a staff meeting once, he told his employees a story from the darkest days of the financial crisis about what motivated him as a regulator. I have to tell you, uh, that night that um, the, the reserve fund broke the buck and we got that word. It was a moment when it looked like the financial system was going to come crashing down. Big firms were frantically calling the Fed, terrified that economic Armageddon had arrived. When this happened, Silva was chief of staff for Tim Geithner, who at the time was president of the New York Fed. And when I realized that nobody had any idea how to respond to that, I went into the bathroom and threw up. <laughs> uh, because I realized there's, this is it. It's just a small group of people. And right now, at this moment, we have no clue. I never want to get close to that moment again. Silva told his staff that this was a very powerful experience that still influenced his thinking. And you could hear that in the recordings after the unusual deal came down late that Friday afternoon involving the overseas bank, Banco Santander. What upset Mike Silva about it was that it seemed like the entire purpose of the transaction was for Goldman Sachs to help Banco Santander appear healthier than it actually was. All banks have to keep some capital on hand. The more deals and loans they do, the more capital they have to keep around, as a safety cushion, in case things go bad. Santander was under pressure from its own regulators back in Europe to hold more capital. And this deal with Goldman Sachs helped solve the problem for Santander. Not by giving Santander more capital, but by taking stuff off their books and putting it onto Goldman's books. Having less stuff meant Santander needed less capital. Mission accomplished. One Fed employee likened it to Goldman getting paid to hold on to a briefcase. And as best as they could tell, Goldman was paid a lot, at least $40 million, with the potential to make hundreds of millions in the end. Mike Silva referred to the deal this way. It's pretty apparent when you think this thing through that it's basically window dressing uh, that's designed to help Banco Santander uh, artificially uh, enhance its capital. To be clear, the deal appeared to be perfectly legal. Silva knew that. But still, he wondered, did they want banks doing these sorts of transactions in the future? If this kind of deal took off and became more popular, could it be a problem? And in a sense, this is what you'd hope a Fed manager would be doing in the aftermath of the financial crisis. Mike Silva learned about this new kind of deal that had come into the world, one with potential risks that they didn't fully understand yet, 
and he set his team to work scrutinizing it. Carmen and the others began to pour over documents for this complex transaction, which had tentacles in Brazil, Spain, the U.S., and the Middle East. And one of the things that caught Carmen's eye was a short paragraph that the banks had written into the agreement. It said that Goldman had to notify the Fed about the Santander deal and obtain a, quote, no objection. In other words, it looked like Goldman was required to get the Fed to officially sign off on the deal before it could close. Maybe because Goldman and Santander worried that regulators might find this new kind of transaction hard to swallow. But now the two banks had closed the deal. Did Goldman satisfy that part of the contract? Here's what Mike Silva had to say about it. The one thing I know as a lawyer that they never got from me was a no objection. Uh, right. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So right. you literally have to mm-hmm. say, I yeah, do not object. And by not Carmen's point. The fact that Goldman didn't get the approval from the Fed didn't endanger the financial system, or Goldman itself. It's a small thing. But later, if the deal ever went bad, it would look like the Fed had approved it. It's right there in the paperwork. They could get dragged into the mess. The Fed team called a big meeting with Goldman executives to question them about the Santander deal. Before they went in, they held a prep session. And Silva told Carmen and the team this was one of the things he wanted to ask Goldman about. I never gave you a no objection. Right. What, what, you know, what happened? Mm-hmm. So, um, that'd be interesting. He was excited about it, and he was the one who wanted to ask that particular question. He sort of said, can I, can I be the one who asks it? And I said, sure. So Mike Silva was rallying his team. Goldman had embarked on this new kind of deal, and there was a lot of interest in it from different parts of the Fed, he said. They needed to understand it better. And he wanted Goldman to know that the Fed was paying close attention. My own personal uh, thinking right now is that we're looking at a transaction that's uh, legal but uh, shady. I want to... I want to put a big shot across their bow on that, mm-hmm. um, poking at it. Maybe we find something even shadier mm-hmm. than we already know. Okay. So let's poke at this thing. Uh, let's poke at it with our usual poker faces. Okay. You know. Um, okay. Uh, I'd like these guys to come away from this meeting confused as to what we think. About. Okay. <laughs> I want to okay. keep them. I want to keep them nervous. Okay. <laughs> does that make sense? Um, yeah. Yeah, it does. People are are amped. They're excited about this. Yeah, his team was definitely excited. They thought, oh, we're definitely going to do something here. You know, this is, this is, it felt like this was, this was action for them, you know. Let's regulate. Yeah, let's (laughs) regulate. (laughs) Fun. Yeah, well, I think that he's going to have a lot of fun. This is what Carmen and her colleagues said to each other as they marched over to the conference room. They dialed up more people on the phone. Welcome to Goldman Sachs And the meeting began. And this, this is something we never get to hear. Federal Reserve examiners going mano a mano with a bank. Goldman executives kicked it off with a summary about the Santander deal. And the examiners started asking questions. Some of them specific and technical. Others quite broad, touching on the big issue Mike Silva had raised about whether banks should be doing deals like this at all. 30 minutes went by. And were there any similar transactions? 45 minutes. What risk do you think of Goldman? And still Mike Silva had not hit Goldman with a question he'd been so eager to ask about the requirement that Goldman was supposed to get the Fed to okay the deal before it went through. In their presentation, Goldman executives had briefly brought it up on their own. They claimed the clause didn't actually require them to get Fed approval. It just seemed that way. 
Silva wasn't satisfied. Finally, after more than an hour, he went for it. It's the only time in the whole meeting he brings it up. We play it now, not because this is an important piece of financial policy, but to give you a chance to hear what it sounds like, at least on this one day, when the top Fed official on site at Goldman Sachs questions Goldman Sachs. Um, just to button up one point, I know the term sheet called for a notice to your regulator. The original term sheet also called for a special non-objection. Sounds like that dropped out at some point. Or That's everything he says on the topic in this meeting. Here it is again. Sounds like that dropped out at some point. Or Th- That's it? That's him poking Goldman on this? <sighs> Yeah, that's that's what you know. That's what passes for poking. <laughs> that's what passes for poking at the at the Fed. I mean, I can't imagine that making them very nervous. Yeah, I mean, it, it come. Yeah, it's just not the way that I would have that I would have asked it. In that moment, Carmen says she saw clearly that when some of her colleagues talked about holding Goldman to account, they meant something very different than what she thought it should mean. You acknowledge that these are facts, you know, fact, this was required, fact, I didn't give it. And then you ask, you know, what are the consequences? After the meeting, the Fed team went back to their floor, and Mike Silva called a debrief. Why don't we just have a quick powwow right here? This was just the regulators, nobody from Goldman, so they could be frank. So Carmen was puzzled when one of her colleagues said, how impressed he was with Goldman. I would just say that, that um, from a process perspective, I think there's a lot to be said for the thoroughness of the process that they engaged in. This surprised Carmen because it seemed premature. They were only at the beginning of their fact-finding. They'd requested documents and minutes of meetings that Goldman still had to give them. They were federal regulators. Their job was to ask questions and demand answers. And yet these colleagues sounded almost apologetic about it. I, I, would, I would add to his comments in that we, I, don't, I, I think we don't want to discourage Goldman from disclosing no, these types of things right. in the future. Yeah. And therefore, maybe you know, some comment that says, don't mistake our inquisitiveness and our desire to understand more about the marketplace in general as a criticism of you as a firm, necessarily. Like, I don't want well, to hit them, them on the mind. bat with a head and then no, no. say, screw it, we're not doing this again. We're not going to disclose it again. We don't need to. Uh, wait a second. You guys are the Federal Reserve. Doesn't Goldman have to give you what you ask for? Absolutely. So where is he coming from? A place of fear. Fear of ticking off Goldman though Carmen couldn't imagine why anyone at the Fed would be afraid. The Fed has both the power to to get the information and the ability to punish the bank if it chooses to withhold it. And some of these powers involve criminal action. So there's no reason to, to be afraid. Did you get the sense that other people around you were taken aback by that comment at the time? Or did that seem like not such a strange comment for someone to make. No, I think business line specialists were very much in agreement with that comment. Don't mistake our inquisitiveness and our desire to understand more about the marketplace in general as a criticism of you as a firm necessarily. I mean, they were all sort of afraid of Goldman and I think they were a little bit confused as to who they were working for. What I was sort of seeing and experiencing was this level of deference to the banks, this level of fear, and just not really showing a lot of 
interest in putting two and two together. It's not like we would walk out of a meeting and they would be like, oh my God, what, what, when they said that, what did that mean? Let's go research it. It was like, oh well, next meeting. I mean, the, ob- the obvious question from what you're describing is, is that regulatory capture? You know, if that isn't, I don't know what is. Regulatory capture. Again, it's when a regulator gets too cozy with the banks they're regulating. It was one of the problems David Bime spotted at the New York Fed in 2009 when he wrote his secret report for them about what the Fed needed to fix after the financial crisis. Remember that report from the beginning of the show? Bime found that one of the causes of regulatory capture at the Fed was simple. Examiners see bank employees every day at work. It's just human nature to try to get along with them. And many examiners feel that the easiest way to get information is by cultivating a friendly relationship, being non-confrontational. Bime says it's tricky walking the line between being friendly and being captured. I spoke with one former Fed examiner who said he and his co-workers used to joke about one of their Fed colleagues deserving an Employee of the Month award, not from the Fed, but from the bank they regulated. And employees of the Fed do go to work for banks. A quick internet search reveals at least seven former Fed bank examiners who now work at Goldman. They include the colleague who, according to Carmen, asked her to change her meeting notes. As Bim and his team spoke to Fed employees about what went wrong leading up to the financial crisis, one problem in particular arose again and again. And that problem was the Fed's culture. That's the epiphany of Bime's report. It was that basic, culture. He was surprised. Yeah, I was. I was interested that what started out looking like a financial discussion was going to turn into a cultural discussion. What the culture expected of people and and what the culture induced people to do. For instance, there was a kind of fear Bime writes about in his report. Not fear of the banks, like Carmen was just talking about, but fear inside the Fed itself. Fed employees told Bime's team they were afraid of contradicting their bosses, afraid of saying what they really thought, afraid of having views that were too different from what everyone else had. Bime lists these fears in his report. So uh, I could just read the, uh, the fear of speaking up list of quotations, and it goes like this. Don't want to be too far outside from where management is thinking. The organization does not encourage thinking outside the box. After you get shot down a couple of times, you tend not to go there anymore. Until I know what my boss thinks, I don't want to tell you. According to Baum's report, this culture of fear paralyzed the Fed in the years leading up to the financial crisis and prevented it from taking action. It's not that the Fed regulators didn't notice the problems accumulating in the financial system that eventually brought it down. They were aware of those problems coming. There were lengthy presentations on subjects like that within the organization. It's just that none of those meetings ever ended with anyone saying, and therefore, let's take the following steps right now. I mean, they're just, they're meetings without a clear agenda. They're meetings without clear objectives. Carmen was used to the private sector, where she says meetings ended with specific action items. People knew what they were supposed to do. None of that happens at the Fed. It's like the information is discussed, and then it just ends up in like a vacuum, floating on air, not acted upon. And the mere act of having this meeting, for them, is almost like akin to having done something about it. 
Take the issue in the Santander deal that was most important to Mike Silva, the question of whether Goldman should be doing these new kinds of deals, deals whose whole purpose was to make foreign banks look better to their regulators. As months passed, you can hear on Carmen's recordings the team debating what to do about it, what action they should take. As best as we can tell, the most forceful action they consider is a letter to Goldman, and not even a stern letter necessarily. The simple fact of a letter, one guy says, will send the message they need. The only downside risk is that they choose to ignore us. You know, we're not obligated, obligating them to do anything necessarily. Um, he says Goldman generally takes these letters seriously, but banks do ignore them sometimes. We don't know if the Fed ever sent the letter. But even if they never did, Mike Silva said they'd already accomplished something important. They'd brought up the deal and conversations with Goldman and held that meeting you heard. And then when we made them think, I guarantee you they'll think twice about the next one, because by putting it through their paces and having that large Fed crowd come in, and, and you know, we, we I busted them pretty good. Uh, in case you didn't hear that, Silva said, I guarantee they'll think twice about the next one. We fussed at him pretty good. Jake Bernstein from ProPublica. Coming up, everything you're hearing, we ran all this by the Fed. Their response, when our program continues. This podcast of This American Life is supported by NatureBox.com, a subscription service dedicated to smarter snacking. Each month, discover new wholesome snacks that are delivered right to your door. NatureBox offers hundreds of guilt-free snacks with no artificial ingredients, no high-fructose corn syrup, and zero trans fats. They even offer low-sugar, vegan, and snacks without gluten. NatureBox features snacks including peanut butter nom-noms and baked sweet potato fries. Choose your snacks or let them surprise you. To get a free sampler box, go to naturebox.com American. And by Squarespace. If you have a story to tell, whether it's about starting a new business or sharing photos from a recent adventure, Squarespace gives you an all-in-one platform to bring these stories to life online. With modern templates, mobile responsive designs, simple drag-and-drop tools, and 24-hour support, you can create a professional website, portfolio, or online store in just a few minutes. For a free trial, visit squarespace.com American. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Today on our program, we're hearing never-before-heard recordings made secretly by a bank examiner named Carmen Segarra at the New York Fed. They give an unprecedented look inside this very secretive, very powerful, very important financial regulator. A note, we have done uh, the normal kinds of editing to these recordings for pacing and clarity that we do to any recordings on our program. Again, here's investigative reporter Jake Bernstein. We first approached the New York Fed to request an interview in July. They declined. We then told them we had Carmen's secret recordings and invited them to comment on the sections we're using here on the radio. They declined to comment, but two Fed officials came to This American Life's office to listen and take notes. We sent them 13 pages of questions. They sent us a two-page statement. It begins, The New York Fed categorically rejects the allegations being made about the integrity of its supervision of financial institutions. Unlike the BIME report, their statement acknowledges no problems at the Fed. They say that in 2011, they began implementing some of BIME's recommendations, and they list a few. But that list doesn't include any of the recommendations BIME made about the central problem he saw, the problem of the Fed's culture, the fear of speaking up, and the deference to the banks. We asked many questions about this. The Fed didn't respond to those directly, but did say in its statement, quote, 
Examiners are encouraged to speak up and escalate any concerns they may have regarding the New York Fed or the institutions that we supervise. They point out that the Fed has lots of ways, quote, to help ensure that its employees freely express their views and concerns, including the ethics office, employee hotline, and internal ombudsman. We asked questions about regulatory capture. Again, the Fed didn't respond directly, but said they ensured examiner independence by regularly rotating people from bank to bank. David Byam writes in his report that when it comes to hiring bank examiners, the Fed, quote, should be willing to take chances on individuals with the confidence to speak their convictions, even at the risk of getting somewhat disruptive personalities. Byam says they should be like the kid who cries out that the emperor has no clothes. He's the only one who dares say it because he doesn't have ordinary social instincts. He doesn't, he doesn't act politely. And somebody like that has to, or a number of people like that, have to be employed by organizations that want to be able to catch a big systemic problem brewing. They're willing to say what they think is right, even if people don't like them as a result. They don't care. Apparently, Carmen's style of examining did make her a disruptive personality to some Fed employees. You can hear her in the recordings when she feels she has the facts, speaking critically of Goldman. But having worked on the international regulatory setup at more than one bank in my life, I can really tell you that in comparison to their peers, they are behind. And it's not by a little, it's by a lot. Um, And it's a real problem. And it's really obvious. Carmen was also vocal with her bosses and co-workers about the shortcomings she saw in the Fed's management. She complained that managers were not settling disputes between the new wave of experts like Carmen and other examiners. Again and again in the tapes, Carmen asks her managers to intervene. I think that management needs to do a better job of managing those people. But not much changed. And then, on a Tuesday in late February... Carmen went in for her weekly meeting with her supervisor, Jonathan Kim. For a while, it was like any other meeting. They talked about examinations and things like that. But then about an hour into the conversation, Kim surprised Carmen by switching the subject to her job performance. I want to, I want to manage your uh, sort of career and expectations, right? Mm-hmm. I want you to be successful. Mm-hmm. Okay? There are, there's information that's coming in, there's opinions that are coming in, right? Mm-hmm. Kim tells her she does a good job looking at issues, identifying problems, figuring out what to do next. In short, the duties of a bank examiner. But then he goes on. I'm never questioning about the sort of the the knowledge base or assessments or those things, right? Mm -hmm. It's really about how you are perceived, Mm -hmm. right? And so if there's a more of a general sort of feedback that Mm -hmm. says, Okay, it's not only one person, it's not only two persons, mm-hmm. right? But it's many more people, mm-hmm. right? Who are perceiving that you're um, uh, you have more sharper elbows, mm-hmm. right? Or that you're sort of breaking eggs. Mm-hmm. And obviously, I I don't know what the right word is. Kim wouldn't tell Carmen who the complaints came from, but she assumed it was the old guard, the business line specialist. Kim told Carmen she needed to approach things differently. She needed to be more, to use Kim's word, relational. 
I think the messages come back to me saying, you know, that you really need to make these changes quickly mm -hmm. right? in order for you to be uh, successful, as part of the, successful as part of the team. Right? Not fired, basically. And, well, I, I don't even want to get there, right? Because, and here's why. Because well, I think that it would be unfair to fire me when I am at, at the end of the day doing a good job. Well, this, uh, look, mm -hmm. I'm here to change sort of the definition of what a good job is, right? Couple of things I that can it, see it a mile away. Okay, couple of things that I would suggest that have a sense of humility, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the things that you say, right, and this is like where you're coming across, right? Mm -hmm. I think I know you well enough that that's not what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. But if I were to be a new person, I would say, Carmen, you're very arrogant, right? Mm -hmm. We asked Carmen how much of this she thought might have to do with her being a woman and a minority. And she says it's hard to say how much of a factor it was. She says it's impossible for her to know if things would have played out differently if she were a guy. We reached out to Jonathan Kim, but he didn't respond, so we couldn't talk to him about this meeting. But we did listen to 46 hours of recordings of Carmen at her job, which Carmen says is everything she ever recorded. It's a grab bag of different kinds of meetings, and there are key meetings that for one reason or another, she says she didn't record. Carmen pre-approved the selections we're using in this story, though there was nothing we wanted to use that she said we couldn't. Listening to Carmen's recordings, you can sometimes hear her do the things that Jonathan Kim is talking about. He talks about sharper elbows, breaking eggs. There are times when Carmen cuts people off, including her bosses, times when she sounds riled up, or brusque. It's clear that the friction she's running into from other Fed employees is real. Her managers acknowledge it. And there's a recording of Fed experts like her who work inside other banks where they gripe about facing the same pushback. But Carmen's the kind of person who doesn't let it slide. She complains about her colleagues a lot, though she's never unprofessional. One of Carmen's colleagues while she was at the Fed told me Carmen did ask direct questions, sometimes embarrassingly direct. But this person said they were all questions that needed to be asked, and that Carmen was, quote, a breath of fresh air. I also spoke to three people who worked with Carmen at jobs she'd had before the Fed, and none of them remembered Carmen behaving unprofessionally, disrespectfully, or arrogantly. And it's clear that other Fed employees in her position were experiencing similar tensions with their colleagues. There's a recording of a meeting with Fed experts, like her, who work inside other banks, that at one point turns into a gripe session about this very issue. Before we go back to this meeting with Jonathan Kim, I just want to read you something. This is from David Beim's report, from page 22. He writes that the only way bank regulators can be effective at spotting the next financial crisis is if the Fed's culture, quote, opens up and encourages people to speak up more. According to Beim, this all depends on managers. Quote, they need to encourage dissent rather than stifle it. Quote, this is a cultural issue of the greatest importance. End quote. And yet, more than two and a half years after David Baum personally handed these prescriptions to the president of the New York Fed, in this meeting with Carmen Segarra, Jonathan Kim said this. So what I would ask you to think about a little bit more is not being so conclusory, mm -hmm. right? 
I'm writing these down so I remember. Right. Like, you know, this is it. They're definitely going in that direction, right? And you use the word definitely a lot too. Mm -hmm. right? <laughs> it's like, well, if you use that, then you want to have a consensus view of definitely, mm -hmm. not only your view. There are a handful of behaviors that Bime singles out as being particularly destructive to the Fed's mission, and one is consensus. On page 9, he notes that consensus is usually a healthy goal that leads to better decisions. But then he goes on, quote, Achieving consensus has costs. One is delay. Ideas get vetted to death. Consensus leadership is seen by some as a way to deflect accountability. Building consensus can result in a whittling down of issues or a smoothing of exam findings so that only the most black and white issues will be taken forward as concerns with the bank. Compromise often results in less forceful language and demands on the banks involved. Again, that was 2009. Here's Jonathan Kim in 2012. So a lot of it is consensus building, right? Hey, you know, what do you think? Oh, okay, you know, that's a you know, good thought. It's a possibility, right? At this point, Carmen had been at the Fed less than four months. Four months since she had walked through the doors of the country's most powerful financial regulator, excited to join an institution dedicated to safeguarding the financial system. It was not working out like she'd hoped. And what was jarring to Carmen was the Fed had the authority it needed to be a good regulator, but it chose not to exercise that authority. I mean, it's almost like, you know, a giant afraid of its own power. She doesn't think the Fed should transform itself into a domineering schoolmarm for the financial system, badgering the banks over every little infraction. I think it would have been just as scary if you had, if I had gone in there and found like an aggressive Fed that was really mean and sort of, you know, trying to nitpick. I think that, you know, all that power sort of being abused, that's a very scary thing. But when you find the opposite, the absence of exercise of, of power, the absence of the exercise of responsibility, then you're just like, you know, this is a problem because you've been made the overarching regulator and, and the country is looking to you to make things better after the crisis. And if you can't do it, then we need to talk about who can. Carmen's reluctance to obediently join the consensus at the Fed led to a showdown between her and her bosses. The issue was an aspect of Goldman Sachs's business that had earned it lots of scorn, conflicts of interest. There were fireworks on display in Delaware Chancery Court. This is a Bloomberg report from March 2012. When Judge Leo Streen rebuked investment banking firm Goldman Sachs for the way it handled a potential conflict of interest in advising natural gas pipeline operator El Paso, the entire episode has led to a reevaluation of how investment banking firms should handle conflicts of interest. This is one of several deals around the time when Carmen was at the Fed that put Goldman in the news for having conflicts of interest. In this deal, Goldman was getting paid to advise one company, an energy firm called El Paso, as El Paso was being purchased by another company, Kinder Morgan. The conflict was this. Goldman owned a large stake in Kinder Morgan. Some shareholders are extremely angry that Goldman stands... Uh, Basically, on both sides of this transaction, they, they're, they're up for a $20 million fee for advising El Paso. Uh, and at the same time, the firm has a $4 billion stake in purchaser Kinder Morgan. Um, the argument Just to clarify, is that Goldman, Kinder Morgan uh, wanted to buy El Paso uh, as cheaply as possible. This would make tons of money for Goldman, 
since it had a large investment in Kinder Morgan. Meanwhile, El Paso, which wanted to be bought for as much as possible, of course, was paying millions to Goldman for advice on the sale, hence Goldman's conflict. As if that wasn't enough, it eventually came out that the lead Goldman banker advising El Paso had a personal stake in Kinder Morgan, worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Carmen says this deal, and others like it, led to one of the first assignments her bosses gave her when she started at the Fed, to examine how Goldman handled, or failed to handle, conflicts of interest. One of the Fed's guidelines is that banks of Goldman's size and complexity need to have a conflicts of interest policy that applies to everyone at the firm. The Fed has criteria for what such a policy should look like. Carmen was familiar with this. She'd worked for years at banks that had policies, she says, and she'd helped put policies, including conflicts of interest policies, into action. So what Carmen found when she looked into whether Goldman had a conflict of interest policy was shocking to her. They really didn't have a firm-wide conflict of interest policy. They didn't have anything close to being adequate on that score. For instance, one thing Carmen looked into was something you'd think would be a basic building block of a good policy a definition of the thing the policy is about. Do you have a, in the policy the definition of a conflict of interest and what that is and what that means? During her examination, Carmen asked Goldman's head of conflicts if their policy had a definition of what a conflict is. And Goldman's head of conflicts answered, No. Okay. That's right. According to the person in charge of evaluating conflicts of interest at Goldman Sachs, the firm's policy did not have a definition of what constituted a conflict. This was just one detail in a stack of evidence Carmen collected showing that Goldman Sachs lacked a proper policy. There was the meeting in November where Fed examiners asked Goldman for the conflicts of interest policy and Goldman told them one didn't exist. According to the meeting minutes, one Goldman executive said, quote, it's probably more than one document. There's no one policy per se. Goldman eventually gave Carmen these documents. We've reviewed them ourselves. They're policies for individual divisions at Goldman. The documents clearly state that two of Goldman's six divisions had no conflict of interest policies for the period she was examining. Another division's policy, Goldman acknowledged, wasn't complete. For the three divisions that did have complete policies, Carmen says they weren't up to snuff. They didn't meet the Fed's criteria. In other words, Goldman had no firm-wide policy at that time. Carmen worked on this examination for nearly seven months. She has records showing that there were at least 15 meetings where conflicts of interest were covered. Her supervisors attended many of them, and she believed they were on board with her conclusion. Until one day, they weren't. It was a Friday in May 2012, Carmen says a colleague came up to her very upset. He'd been in a meeting that morning with the Fed team at Goldman that Carmen had missed. The Fed's top guy at Goldman, Mike Silva, had said that Goldman didn't have a conflict of interest policy, which Silva himself confirmed later in an email that we've seen. And another examiner had challenged him and said they did. After the meeting, according to Carmen's colleague, Mike was seemed to be sort of back tracking and saying, well, you know, he was, that he was considering adopting the view that, you know, Goldman had a conflicts of interest policy. And, and I could not believe what I had heard because 
It's so many months, so many meetings, and just so much evidence. So when Carmen heard that Silva was about to change his view, she immediately wrote him and Jonathan Kim an email. Goldman Sachs does not have a firm-wide conflict of interest policy, she reminded them. And she and her legal and compliance team were actually preparing a formal finding about it to issue to the bank. A formal finding in this world is the Fed using its regulatory power to force the bank to do something. In this case, get together a policy that met the Fed's guideline. Silva and Kim both wrote back saying that she was getting ahead of herself. Her conclusion still had to be vetted. Considering the more than a dozen meetings they'd already had on the topic, the hundreds of pages of documents she'd amassed, and Goldman executives' own statements on the subject, Carmen was stunned at what she was reading. Are you serious? I mean, it's like, this has been vetted to death at this point. What do you mean? What, what remains to be How many times do you have to ask, and in how many different ways do you have to ask Goldman these questions before you are convinced that the answer that you're consistently getting is in fact the truth? In his email to Carmen, Silva said, quote, in light of your repeated and quite adamant assertions that Goldman has no written conflicts of interest policy, you can understand why I was surprised to find a conflicts of interest section in Goldman's code of conduct, end quote. We've seen this conflicts of interest section. It's just a few paragraphs long and very general. Carmen says it didn't come close to meeting all the Fed's criteria for a policy. We showed it to two experts, former Fed examiners familiar with the Fed's guidance on this issue. They both said it wouldn't qualify as a policy. One said it looked more like a vision-type statement. Silva also cited a report Goldman had released, talking about how it was improving its conflicts policy. Also not a policy, Carmen says. She'd seen that document, and the document itself explained that it was a report on what Goldman needed to do to improve. It doesn't claim to be a policy itself. We reached out to Goldman Sachs with 10 pages of detailed questions. Goldman replied with a three-paragraph statement. In it, they point out that Carmen Segata had unsuccessfully interviewed for jobs at Goldman three years in a row. Carmen says this is true and that she interviewed at a bunch of banks multiple times. In our questions, we asked point-blank whether Goldman had a firm-wide conflict of interest policy for the period Carmen was examining. Goldman doesn't answer that question, but says instead, quote, Goldman Sachs has long had a comprehensive approach for addressing potential conflicts. And, quote, a quick Google search shows publicly available Goldman Sachs documents outlining the management of conflicts. Ms. Sagata's supervisors made that same discovery. Then the statement goes on to quote from the Mike Silva email I just told you about. Before Carmen could respond to Mike Silva's email, she was summoned to his office by his deputy. She made an excuse to grab something from her desk and flicked on her recorder. Silva and his deputy motioned her to a small table, and Silva got straight to the point. Mike Silva sort of said, you know, you have to come off the view that Goldman doesn't have any kind of conflicts of interest policy. Carmen, we have to come off the view that Goldman doesn't have any kind of conflict of interest policy. We, we, we can say they, they have to improve it. The recording is muddy. Silva says, we can say they have to improve it. Maybe they have to improve it a lot. Then he says, but we're losing credibility, saying they don't have one at all. Silva tells Carmen this isn't just coming from him. That lawyers, presumably the Fed's lawyers, 
say her conclusion's not valid. To claim that Goldman doesn't have a policy, he says, is, quote, patently wrong. What Carmen does in this meeting is exactly what David Beim called for Fed examiners to do. She stands by her convictions, stands by her expert opinion. She stands up to her boss, even as he tells her she's wrong. Um, I, I don't understand why the fixation on whether they do or don't have a policy. He says he doesn't understand her fixation about whether Goldman has a policy or not. Why can't we just say they, they have bits and pieces of a policy, but they have to dramatically improve it? He asks, why can't we just say they have basic pieces of a policy, but they have to dramatically improve it? Carmen suggests two ways to handle their disagreement. She can meet with anybody at the Fed who doesn't see this the way she does and walk them through the evidence. Or she tells Silva she can formally submit her findings and conclusions and they can override them. They're her bosses, after all. She says she knows she's the low person on the totem pole. We have no idea why Silva didn't go for that, why he needed his underling to agree. Carmen speculates that if she submitted her conclusions, it would create a formal record that her bosses didn't want. And if someday Goldman had other conflicts of interest problems and there was some sort of congressional or outside investigation, it could make the Fed look bad. In the meeting, Silva will not let it go. He asks her over and over to change her conclusion, repeating at least seven times some version of, why do you have to say they don't have a policy? Why do we have to say they don't have a policy? They have one. Silva and Carmen go back and forth. Finally, after more than 30 minutes of this, Silva asks one last time. Can you tell me again why do you have to say there's not a policy? Why can't you just say there's a very poor policy? Carmen says she was desperate to get out of that office. She relented. Okay. I can work with you on that. I hear your plea. I hear your plea. Okay, I can work with you on that, she says. I hear your plea. I hear your plea. I can say it's a poor policy. Only she doesn't stop there. She can't help herself. Between you and me and these four walls? Between you and me and these four walls, she says? No way. No way this is a policy. No way. No way this is a policy. I will work with you, she says. I will say they have a very poor policy. But professionally, I cannot agree. But professionally, I cannot agree. At this point, you can hear the life drain out of Silva's voice. He wearily tells her that he doesn't want to put her in a position where she has to say something she doesn't agree with. The conversation was over. All right. Thanks for coming in. All right, Silva says. Thanks for coming in. In 2009, David Byam wrote in his report on how the New York Fed must change to prevent the next financial crisis, quote, because so many seem to fear contradicting their bosses, senior managers must now repeatedly tell subordinates that they have a duty to speak up, even if that contradicts the boss. Evaluation of employees at year-end might include specific categories like willingness to speak up, willingness to contradict me. Mike Silva was actually part of the team that worked with Byme to come up with these recommendations. The following week, he had Carmen in 
for a meeting. And he fired her. In the two-page statement the Fed sent us last week, they say Carmen's concerns about the conflict of interest policy were, quote, taken seriously and escalated by senior members of the team while she was inside Goldman Sachs. We asked a number of questions about consensus at the Fed, and this is the closest thing they say in response. Quote, Because of the potential impact of our decisions and actions, we review our determinations very thoroughly. To vet ideas and conclusions, we have developed a multi-step checks and balances review process in which the supervisory team and its lead supervisor play a key role. It's been almost two and a half years since Carmen was fired. Last December, Mike Silva left the Fed. He now works for GE Capital. Jonathan Kim is still at the Fed. As for Carmen, in October 2013, she sued the New York Fed, as well as Mike Silva and Jonathan Kim, for wrongful termination. She claims she was fired for simply performing her duties as a bank examiner. She sued for monetary damages and for her job back. In the statement the Fed sent us last week, they say, quote, The decision to terminate Ms. Sagata's employment with the New York Fed was based entirely on performance grounds, not because she raised concerns as a member of an examination team about any institution. In the spring, a judge threw Carmen sued out, saying the law Carmen sued the Fed under did not apply in this case. Carmen is going to appeal. I've done interviews with other former Fed employees, and they all say there are competent, conscientious people working at the Fed. Carmen agrees with that, and on our recordings, we heard people like that. And in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the Fed has tried to fix some things. In its statement to us, it says it's always trying to improve. People who work with banks told us that the Fed and other regulators have gotten tougher recently. But culture is insidious. It's tough to change. Employees who work at the Fed as recently as last year told me they witnessed some of the same cultural problems David Byme documented and Carmen Segarra encountered. The same deference to the banks and lack of inquisitiveness and mismanagement. We don't know if the culture at the New York Fed is improving. And because it's such a secretive place, we probably won't know. Unless someone comes out with more secret recordings or Congress forces them to answer some questions, or there's another financial crisis. Jake Bernstein. His online version of this story is at propublica.org. At our website, we'll be posting the questions that we sent to the Fed and to Goldman Sachs, as well as their full responses. That's at thisamericanlife.org. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. A bit Coin as you're going into the old blockchain 
everybody knows, everybody knows till everybody knows your name. Down the road it will be told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Our Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain, our Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh Lord, pass me some more Oh, Lord, before I have to go Oh, Lord, pass me some more Oh, Lord, before I have to go I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, Commissioner Greg Gonzalez from the Tennessee Department of Financial Institutions right here in the capital of Tennessee, good old music city, Nashville. Mr. Gonzalez, sir, we are counting on you to make Tennessee a Bitcoin-friendly state. And now an important question for all you small business owners and startups out there. Do you have a business that needs more exposure? Do you want to increase your customer base and increase your profits? Here's something to think about for your business. This podcast you're listening to right now, Bitcoins and Gravy, has over 10,000 weekly listeners and is heard each week in over 30 different countries around the world. The Bitcoin sphere is expanding exponentially, and Bitcoins and Gravy is expanding in pace with this relatively new technology. So as our listener base grows, so does the potential for your business to reach more and more customers here in North America, South America, Europe, Asia, and around the globe. To find out how to advertise on Bitcoins and Gravy, just email me at the following address, howdy at bitcoinsandgravy.com. That's howdy, H-O-W-D-Y, 
howdy at bitcoinsandgravy.com. I can produce for you a high-quality 30-second spot or a one-minute spot for your business right here at the Treehouse Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. The cost of these ads is very affordable, and because everyone knows I'm a nice guy, I am always willing to work with your budget. Creative advertising strategies and packages are available. Listen, advertising does work. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it, right? Do something nice for your business by pushing it forward and taking it to the next level. If you've enjoyed the show today, please take a minute to leave a comment on Let's Talk Bitcoin in the comments section right there below the show notes. You can also leave a message on SoundCloud or do the old-fashioned thing and send me an email. And of course, Bitcoin and Litecoin tips are always appreciated by the hardworking writers and podcasters in the Bitcoin world. Signing off now from East Nashville, Tennessee, I'm your host, John Barrett, with my trusty companion, Maxwell, by my side. Say goodbye, Maxwell. Y'all be good to each other out there now, and remember, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing.